Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. I quite like wine. Maybe you're the same yourself. I'm not someone who has it every evening, but when I do have it, I enjoy it. And I know enough to have some favourites and also to know what my sort of thing is when I come across it. I particularly enjoy drinking wine with people who know more about it than I do, which, to be fair, is a low bar, but it's always interesting to learn something along the way. So when I've been to wine tastings at vineyards or in the company of winemakers, which I've been lucky enough to do on occasion in a number of places around the world, something I've been struck by is that here's someone who overlaps with the world of MTF in ways you might not expect. Because while you might not think of growing and stomping on grapes for a living, or serving thirsty customers in a restaurant, or selling bottles in a retail outlet as having a great deal of connection with the worlds of innovation and creativity, well, au contraire, this is science meets art at its most fundamental level. The last winemaker who poured me a glass of Reserva was a microbiologist by training, a musician by calling, an entertainer by nature, and an innovator, creating new and award-winning combinations. So, I thought I would indulge one of my enthusiasms by tying it, however loosely, to the established interests of this program. Wine is art, wine is science, wine is politics, and it can also be a platform for social justice and inclusion. And someone who knows that better than anyone is wine writer and critic Julia Coney. Welcome, Julia. Thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Apologies for the cliched wine music. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, The sun is shining out here. It's not too cold, so I'm I'm happy. And where do we find you today? Washington, D.C. Right. Okay. So there's been a lot going on there in the last few months. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah. We we hear some bits and pieces. I mean, I'm a long way away, but some of the news filters through. Has it, I mean, you're from the world of wine. Has there been some um, some impact on how wine is enjoyed or consumed or sold that's uh, that's come about in the last, uh, well, in the last couple of months particularly? Well, I think one of the good things that has happened is the tariffs have been lifted um, for the U.S., between U.S. and Europe for four months, mm-hmm. while people actually sit down and talk things through on how to do a tariff, or is it going to take place? Is, are they going to continue to have it? I'm very excited that stopped. And also because there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts in wine, especially like because of the way the system is set up in the United States, that a lot of people were really hurting. A lot of importers, distributors, retailers, because the price in the markup just was so expensive, so high. So hopefully with everything coming out, you know, every it will be okay. So that's some good news that has come out of Washington, D.C., besides the November election. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I know that there's a lot of wine production that goes on in the US, but I guess probably not all of the consumption of wine is of American wines. Uh, so, I mean, what proportion would that be? I will say, I think the majority is still, people still drink the majority of American wines in America. I mean, you know, California is the biggest, but then after that, you have Oregon, you have Washington State, you have like in New York, the Finger Lakes. I think, you know, we also get drink a lot of European wines as well. And it also depends on where you live because the way the system is set up, everybody can't export their wine to certain states. So depends like New York can get anything, I always like to say, but a lot of Europe doesn't always make its way west. 
if we're thinking. So I'm here, I'm here in the DC. So I'm, I'm, we're able to get a lot of good things. So I just will say like, people are now more curious about wine. Mm. In a way, I think the consumer is more informative. Where before it was people just saying, you should drink this. I think the consumer now is like, well, I kind of did my own research and I'm probably not going to drink that. Or I want to try something new. And I think with the onset of social media, we have new drinkers, sure, which is always a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we should probably back up a little bit because there are probably some people listening to this going, hang on, what have I tuned into? This is not what I was expecting because we, we focus a lot on on artificial intelligence and, you know, uh, artistic experimentation and nuclear power reactors. Suddenly we're, we're talking about wine. And I, I want to kind of justify it because, uh, like, we were talking just before we, we started this interview, I, I see it very much as this kind of intersection of creativity and science. There's a real kind of heavy science going on. Where, where do you come into this from? Well, I'm as a wine journalist, I look at wine. Wine is farming, agriculture, and science, right? You have to know acid, you have to know ratios, because a lot of wine happens in the vineyard, but a lot happens in the lab. And I think people forget that if they're making what I say, wines of place, wines of character, wines that are interesting, you that's why you find a lot of engineers, <laughs> chemistry majors, they're all, they become winemakers, right? Because of that intersection of science and farming and also right now we're using technology to talk about wine right wine now we we had to like every i've been on more zooms with wine in the past year than i had ever thought in my entire life so but also i think art wine and artificial intelligence will happen i mean you have a lot of labels now that are putting ai labels so people can uh, use their phone think of all the apps right we have apps to take a photo of your wine bottle right? That app then uploads it. Now you have a record. And then you could say, you could rate it. You could see other people's rating of that wine. Also, you could actually decide to some of them purchase from that site. So I think technology in wine is just, is moving faster than I think the wine world is ready for. Sure. Recommendation engines, particularly, I guess you're talking about. Well, that also, um, when you go to a restaurant, like they're going to be apps where you're going to say, okay, I'm scanning a wine list. I'm having this wine. How can I get it? Now, and pairings too, I suppose. Pairings, yeah. Well, pairings are subjective, right? Because I think it, it goes back to everybody's taste, right? What 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 I like and you don't like is is okay. So I think pairings will look different now mm. than you know, especially with the restaurants slowly coming back. The you know, for a long time you had all the psalms told everybody what to drink, right? And then now with social media, like I go on Instagram and I tell people and I talk to winemakers and I tell them what to drink. And then you have to think about other like Clubhouse, right? Clubhouse has wine rooms and everybody's talking about drinks on Clubhouse and whiskey and beer and all that. So technology in wine is, is here to stay, even though I think some wine people are a little reluctant to embrace it. Interesting. And of course, all of this happens as a, with a backdrop of uh, politics and labor and you know, history. And, and there's a big story to be told there. It's so many stories. I mean, wine, wine to me tells a story, right? It's economics, it's politics. It's also romance, right? It's family. You know, a lot of you have, if you think about Europe, they're really family dominant. Or then you think of like some people in, you know, I know stories where, hey, I moved here with $10,000 and I'm a sort of winery. And 15 years later, they have that dream, right? They're, they've worked hard. They worked their butts off to get there and they have that too. So wine just tells a story of everything that goes on, in my opinion. Mm. Is there a, a distinction between the story of farming and the story of wine? Is it, uh, is it particularly different? I think people don't think of wine as farming. <laughs> I think that's what, you, when people think, oh, they're grapes that, that grow, okay. And when they think of farming, they think of animals, 
Right. But you have to have somebody watch those grapes, right? Do the climate change, right? Is it going to spring frost, rains that happen? You know, what's going on? I look at weather now more than I ever did mm. before I started working in wine because I want to know what's happening. And so farming plays a place like, you know, it's also if you look at there's farming and then there's biodynamic farming, people who look like, it, you know, it's a moon day, so I can't do this to the grapes, right? You have a lot of that happening in biodynamic farming and people putting crystals in the vineyard. Like it's, it's still farming, but it's getting, you know, it's just very different. Yeah. Well, how much of, of uh, superstition falls into this? Because it sounds like once you start paying attention to uh, whether you put crystals in the ground or, or which direction the moon is facing, it, it sounds like it kind of leaves science a little bit, do you think? No, I don't think at least. No, I don't think. I think because it is part of science, right? It's like, isn't the, don't we look at the stars? Don't we look at the moon? Don't we call that science? Sure. So it's still science. It might not be a science you may like in your wheelhouse of like what we think science is, but there's a science to it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you, you're kind of billed as somebody who talks a lot, particularly as a journalist, around the intersection of wine, race, and language. Yes. And I thought that, that last bit was really interesting. How does language play a part in all of this? Because when we think of how wine, if, you, if wine is presented in the world context, right, it's a heavy... European based way we do descriptors, right? Okay, if you're, you know, you, you're from New Zealand, let's describe Sauvignon Blanc. What have you heard? It smells it, gooseberries, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what if I, I have never had a gooseberry until four years ago. So if I come from another country and I don't know what a gooseberry is, we have to change the language on how we're talking about this wine. Uh-huh. Grapefruit is not everywhere, lemons are not everywhere. So we have to change the way we talk about in the language and the way we present this wine to make it so someone who is from the Caribbean and they grew up with something completely different as far as flavor and pairings, how do we present wine to them? Because if I say, oh, it has a gooseberry, they're going to like, what is that? Just like I was like, I had never had a gooseberry uh-huh. until oh. four years ago. So now we have to, everybody doesn't have the same fruit. So the language has to change based on who you're talking to and based also on how we're as journalists and writers and teachers explaining wine. Right. And what are the stories that need to be told in journalism? Is it just reviewing wines or is it about uh, telling the story of individuals who are growing wine or... uh... Every part part of the wine industry, right? Not just the people growing wine, right? Vineyard managers, the viticultures, the people who are just literally taking one grape and exploring the science of that. Because we have this disconnect almost like, is it the winemaker and then it's the wine, right? And we're reviewing those, but then bring it back because every bottle of wine pretty much you you have in your mm-hmm. hand, 10,000 hands have gone to make that one bottle. So the, if that many hands has touched it, the person who prunes it is not necessarily the person who selects the grapes, the person who actually presses the grape or a machine, that's not, it's so many moving parts. And so it's telling those stories Mm-hmm. And, you know, in giving giving honor to the people that do that hard work, because wine is hard work to make. Mm. Wine is not easy. I always tell people, wine is not easy. That's why I'm not a winemaker. Because <laughs> it's science. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like chemistry. 
Yeah, I don't like early morning, so it's probably why I'm not a winemaker. But um, it, yeah, it's really interesting because there are so many dimensions to this. There are, I mean, there is obviously the growing, but then there's the the understanding of the the microbiology of it and and how yes. you know the the alcohol is formed by the sugars and 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 even the communication of it to be able to explain to somebody who visits your your vineyard how it's working. I think is it's a real yes. and set also of the, the right time to pick. Pick the select the grapes, right? That's mm-hmm. based on weather. That's based on science. Like, is it a good time? And then we have to go, which way are we, what vessel we're putting in it? Is it going to be a tank? Is it going to be concrete? Is it going to be oak? And then how much of that oak is new? How much is that always has been used before? So all those sciences go into wine. And so we have to look at those like, okay, well, am I going to move it from oak into steel or steel into oak? And then that's a whole other thing they have to think about. And then bottling. Like so much happens, like corks, right? You're in Portugal, you know, Portugal makes the corks. Well, is it too much air? So then the cork ruins the wine. Or all these things go into play. Where do you stand? Actually, interestingly, because I don't often get a wine expert on uh, on Zoom. So uh, where do you stand on um, the bottle caps, the the, um, the non-cork plastic bottle caps? Are we in favour or? I am in favour if... You know, I know they do that primarily Australia and New Zealand, and I've had delicious wines from there when you're talking aging potential. And when I say aging, that's buying a specific wine meant to be aged because all wines aren't meant to be aged. Mm-hmm. There's a question on that, but I have had aged Australian wines and New Zealand wines, and they were phenomenal. And then I've had, you know, cork wines from, you know, a traditional bottle, and it was like, oh, this happened. But wine is such a science in a bottle that that could happen, whether it's a cork or whether it's a screw cap. Mm. So it, it's something to think about. A lot of people don't realize that. It could happen. You could get a bad bottle of wine even with a screw cap. Sure. It's, it's a little less likely, but you can't still. Right. Now, I'm familiar with, uh, obviously, Californian wines, you know, and Sonoma and, and uh, Napa Valley and, and so on. How much of America is a wine region? In terms of numbers, I mean, California wine is why we have wine in America. They were the pioneers to do that. But this is a fun fact. Every state makes wine. Whether or not you want to drink it in the United States is a different conversation. (laughs) Where should I avoid? Like, I am not a fan of, like, muscadine grapes. It's a certain, it's a little sweet for me. It depends on if you like sweet or not. I personally, like, I love Oregon. I love the Finger Lakes. They're doing some crazy fun wine in Texas. And, I mean, Texas Hill Country, which never thought I, you know, because I remember when they a lot of like 20 years ago, it was like, mm, let's see where this is going to go. Cause right now it's not there, but now it is. Is that about the climate? Is it about the soil? Is it about the all of it. culture? All of it. No, not culture, but climate and soil. Right. Because the P- Texas Hill country is in the middle of the state. And so you get tornadoes, right? Not necessarily where the, the Gulf is where you're getting hurricanes, but all that affects wine. Cause if a hurricane passes, and I mean, the winds from that just, and we got to think how wine, the wind travels, wind travels and things settle on grapes and settle into the vine, which means it settles into the soil. Mm-hmm. So it's all connected. Hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, you're the founder of something called Black Wine Professionals. Yes. And obviously there's, there's something that really needs to be unpacked there. And I guess the, the most important thing is, is the reason that it exists. What is the purpose of Black Wine Professionals? Well, um, you know, the U.S. has a big racial history, right, mm-hmm. with, with um, slavery and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything. And as a wine professional, I was often 
given like bad looks, horrible comments said to me about people didn't expect me to be the wine professional. They didn't expect me to be the journalist, right? I I walked into a winery in um, California and a winemaker was like, oh, I didn't expect you to be black. And I said, I didn't expect you to be an asshole, but here we are. <laughs> and those kind of comments, right, have happened more than than I that I actually share. And I started that the black wine professionals because so many times I would be on a media trip to go to a wine region and people will go, we, we don't know that many black people to add on the trip that work in wine. And so I created a listserv. So I'm like, here you go. <laughs> like, if you can't find anybody, I, you can't tell me that anymore because I created a list for you. And is this one of those domains that black people have been prevented from participating in? Is the rep- representation a problem? Is it just that it's just not expected? Well, not expected representation. And like I, I was at a, um, and I know people are listening, we're going to be like, oh, this is crazy. I was at a champagne week conference, right? All these champagne producers. And you had a lot of people coming from the U.S. that, were, that came with importers or distributors and not one person of color. And actually not one female, not, not one woman. Like, and I was just kind of like, this is ridiculous. Why? And I mean, and I was there on my own money and I'm asking these distributors, they were like, well, I don't know who else I could have brought. And I started listing the names of all the wine directors that were women and women of color to him. Like you could have done at, at really nice restaurants. But the mindset is, I don't, I, I don't see these people in my purview. And so therefore they don't exist. It's, 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 you know, it's kind of like if you eat oatmeal every day and then all of a sudden you try like a cereal and you're like, oh, it's something different. So it's, I look at it like that. Like if you do the same thing all the time or around the same people all the time, then you need, a, you need to explore that the world is bigger than that. So that's why I started it. Sure. I mean, there's, there's probably all sorts of deep and complex reasons why this is the way that it is. But I wonder if there's a causal relationship between the history of land ownership uh, and uh, and you know winemaking now. Well, that well, I mean the land ownership. I mean, if you look at people of color, cannot not we don't own the land as much. We don't own, and so that's the problem. But when it comes to the buying aspect and the selling aspect, that's a whole. They're two separate things. Mm-hmm. So it is like that's why we're trying to get, and I'm working with universities and people to we're getting more people into the winemaking business of wine, viticulture, all the what I call the non-sexy part of wine. The sexy part of wine is the drinking of the wine. That's the sexy part. The non-sexy part is working in a vineyard, yeah. right? It's sure. cl- taking the hose and cleaning the floor. That's the non-sexy side, right? It's doing harvest. It's so getting people in those positions and then also saying, okay, they don't have land ownership, but how do we change that? Because all you have to remember, California in Napa Valley, an acre of land is almost a million dollars, an acre. That's only that's a certain income level to be able to buy that, right? But it's not a certain if you're trying to get to become a winemaker, if you're trying to work in the business. So it's getting people in those positions and also looking at it like, okay, eventually, if you can come together, work for a place, then how can we get more land ownership? Because that's the it's just also too land is very expensive. God's not making any more of it. <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. <laughs> In fact, if anything, there might be yeah, less, less of it, it quite yes. soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we have this um, massive community that we're part of uh, that are, I guess, what you call tinkerers, experimenters, people who build things, people who make things. Is is winemaking something that you can experiment with at home? I personally wouldn't, but that's me because I'm just 
you know, I don't, I don't, I know people are going to laugh at this. I don't like bugs and <laughs> fermenting and gnats and hoses. That's just not my jam. But a lot, there's a lot of wine making kits on the market where people actually can make wine in their home. I don't know if that's real wine to sell. And it's also, I would say, if you're making it at home and once you go to bottle it, be mindful of how you store it. Because a lot of times people are like, even if you buy wine, oh, I put it on top of the refrigerator, it's in the kitchen. Wine should be like in a really cold room in your house mm. or like a dark closet. But I will say if, if people want to make it and have fun and experiment it, I mean, I say that now, who knows in six months, I'm like, I bought a wine making kit. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> hey, one, of, one of my favorite things, and it's probably not the important thing by any stretch about the Black Wine Professionals website, but one of the things I absolutely loved about it is when I went there, there was this playlist and it's the most celebratory <laughs> collection of me. I, I had it on repeat all, all the last week. It's been so much fun. Um, but there is this kind of, um, it's almost like a declaration. It's like a celebration of Yes, we're here. Uh, and and I, how deliberate was, was that kind of selection of music to go along with this community of people? Well, it's funny. I don't make the playlist. My advisor makes the playlist. Like I told her, I said, I want playlists that are fun, people can vibe to. I said, I want you to think of me dancing with a wine glass in a vineyard. And she went, done. I said, that's all I want. Because also, too, wine has been so stuffy. I mean, you know this. Wine could come across like, a little, you know, no nose in the air is not for anybody. And I wanted the playlist to be fun and people to have a glass of wine and just dance around in their home, in their yard, wherever, and have and play that music and just jam out. Yeah, yeah. We're not talking Mozart quartets or or anything like that. No, no, no. We like Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like I told her, every playlist has to have a Beyonce song and at least one Earth, Wind, and Fire art. Like you know, because that's kind of like and nineties hip hop. Like all on a playlist. And yeah, you got you got me on all three of those. That's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And now I noticed you wrote something about a year ago uh, about something called Uncorked on Netflix. Um, yes. And it's not something Netflix. I've seen. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that was and why that was important? So it's funny. Um, Saturday was the one year anniversary of the movie launching on Netflix. So it basically is loosely based on a gentleman named Lynn Proctor, who is in California when he was studying to become a master sommelier through the quarter master psalms. And the movie is just a riff on his life, but it's a relationship. It's like a father and son relationship where someone finds, they find what they want to do, but then they're trying to get their family on board to go with it. But also too, if you love playlists, that is the best playlist. That playlist is on Spotify. It is so good. And so I wrote this piece about Uncorked because Uncorked is the first movie of its kind where the entire, the majority of the cast are black people talking about wine. The majority of wine movies have always been like the stuffy old white guy, you know, it's been about, you know, judgmental, like, like we're, we're judging the wine, we're, we're, you know, we're saying this, and here is just this guy who found his passion, who happens to be young, and it's a fun movie to watch. Even if you don't like wine, it's just one of those movies kind of like, you, you, la you laugh, you cry, and like you, in the end, you're like, okay, I really feel good about that. And also it makes you, it was filmed in Memphis, and it makes you want to just go have some Memphis barbecue and some good wine too. Fantastic. How does somebody become somebody who knows about wine? Where do you start? What's the journey? I say drink a lot. <laughs> <You can't>. Drink responsibly. <laughs> you have to taste wine, right? Mm. I, I wasn't, I got into wine in my late 20s and I really then, and so I've been 20 years of just drinking and tasting wine, try, even trying wines I not, wouldn't normally try. Mm -hmm. I try everything. Do I like everything? No. But you have to, I say your tongue is a muscle. 
just like, you know, you go to the gym and like you keep going and you're like, oh, I feel good. I feel good. I keep going. That's, that's the way of wine tasting is you have to keep tasting wine. And I always like to tell people when you see wine for people like we work, we have to spit the wine because otherwise you'll be drunk in the middle of the day, you know, doing a tasting. Try to actually taste the wine, spit the wine, swirl the wine, then taste it again, spit it again and see what you like and then pair it with food that you don't think you should. Right. I always tell people I love champagne and potato chips because we think of champagne as this celebratory. Oh, it's the anniversary. I got to have this fancy meal. No, I just pair it with Lay's regular potato chips and it, and it works. Yeah. Interesting. It, that's how you learn. That's the science of part of it. Right. That's the geeky part is understanding every wine is not going to go with every potato chip. Yeah. It's experimentation. And and I it's guess experimentation. Do you write down your results? Do you do you have a journal where you're not you I know? have a journal and I'm slowly getting someone to transfer those journals into into like words so people the pairing is so different. Because the reason why I say like if I have a blanc de blanc champagne, right? That's a Chardonnay based champagne, I can't have Ruffles potato chips. Now those potato chips may be different in where everyone's listening, but Ruffles doesn't have the same salt content as the Lay's. So I'm matching the salt of the chip to match the salt in the wine, the saltiness of the wine. And so that's my pairing. So if I'm doing Lay's, I mean, Ruffles, I'll do a Blanc de Noir, which is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, because it, it's a little softer and it'll balance the chip. So that's my like crazy kind of like notes. Uh, the the ritual of wine drinking is is kind of interesting as well. You talked about the swirling and the the spitting and it's, it's, it's so pretentious. Think about it. Oh, we swirl the glass and oh, you smell it, and then you see people. Oh, you know, it, it's fun, right? That's the part of it. Uh huh. Does the shape of the glass matter as much as it seems to? Yes, I I know people want the, the glass matters. Glasses, yes, they do. Because if you're drinking a white wine in a red wine glass, it's getting too much air. So literally the shape and the size d d does matter. And also too, you know, everybody likes the, the glass, the stemless. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens is if you have a cold white wine, you're warming up the wine faster. And if you have a red wine, you're actually making it warmer, warmer. And also too, if people are listening, your red wine also needs to have a little chill on it when you start drinking it. I know people are shocked about that. They usually like, it should be room temperature. No, it shouldn't. It should be at least 70 to, 70 to 72 degrees. It needs to have a chill on it. And you want the stem so you don't warm up the wine. So that's why glasses matter. So you hold the stem, you don't hold the bowl. You hold the stem, not the bowl. Right. What's your background that led you to this? I mean, I know you said you started drinking <laughs> wine at, at 20. What sort of kid were you that led you to, to being this kind of person? So first of all, I come from a family that doesn't drink. Uh -huh. My family doesn't drink. So... I used to work for law firms. I used to be a legal assistant. And one of the attorneys that I worked for had just come back from California in the late 90s. And I was like, your stuff is in the way. I can't get to my desk, all these wine bottles. And he was like, didn't you study abroad in France? And I was like, yes. He's like, didn't you drink wine? I'm like, yes, everyone drinks wine in France. Like, it's cheaper to drink wine than to have a soda. So yes, I drank wine. But he had a barbecue at his house. And he paired these amazing California wines with ribs, brisket, chicken. And that was the first time. And he just made me understand food and wine pairings and why food and wine go together. Mm. And so I explored that in my 20s, you know, never thought I would be talking about wine, eventually moved from Houston to DC. And I started a beauty blog and I used to be a beauty writer. So I transitioned 
that blog after 10 years and I decided that I wanted to be a wine journalist. I wanted to like my third act to be wine. And so I took some formal classes and I took the formal classes, not because I didn't know about wine, but I just wanted a little structure on the regions, a little more history than I was doing on my own. And so that's why I set out to just transit and also beauty and wine go hand in hand. Mm. A lot of people don't think that. And when I say that, I mean like science of beauty, the science of fragrance and matching and oils and structure and alcohol, all that is the same as wine. Okay. It all goes back to science. Sure. So, <laughs> so I mean, to go back to the childhood thing and you're from a non-drinking family, but you went to study in France. Yeah. What happened that led to that? I mean, is when you look back, do you see an obvious journey or have you just kind of been pinballing around d- completely different domains? I guess I, I, I've never been asked that question. So for me, looking back, um, I had a very early obsession with France. I had a, because I was a James Baldwin fan. Uh-huh. I started reading James Baldwin in, in middle school. And I, my parents were like, you don't want, I was like, oh, I want to take French. And they were like, okay, well, you have to go to a school where we can have a French class. And so I started taking French in the, in the seventh grade. And so I took it all through high school, all through college. And I knew I wanted to study abroad. But I, and I have a degree in English literature. So where do you go? I mean, it's, it's Sartre and all these writers and you go to France and I studied abroad and it was, and I look at it now, like, yes, all that led to this, but I didn't know that at the time. Because mm. in my mind, I was going to school to be a lawyer. And then when I worked for lawyers, I realized I like working for them. I don't want to be one. Sure. I can understand that impulse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when I started r- blogging, I, I knew I needed to do that. That that was the, the calling and figuring all that out. So it's, it's like pinballing. Right? Bing, bing, bing. But, with, but with a coherent <laughs> narrative about it. I mean, you think of somebody who uh, reads James Baldwin and studies in France as somebody who's very sophisticated and, and learned and, uh, you know, with a wine glass in one hand and, and uh, writing and thinking and, you know, the sort of romantic ideal of, of the of the wine drinker. And, and I saw it in France, right? You see it. I mean, and then when I started really getting traveling and traveling opens your eyes. I'll tell anyone this. It just there's something about travel like you have to be uncomfortable because you don't know the language. You technically you don't know what's going on. The, the subway system's different. The taxi drivers, everything's moving. And so I, in my late 20s, I just really traveled so much. I would go to wine regions on vacation. Mm-hmm. Like some people were just like, oh, where are you going? I'm, I'm, I'm going to France. I'm going to Italy. I'm just going. I would go, oh, I'm going to see the you know, Coliseum and I'm going to drink wine. And that's how it became. Those two vacations for me were always together with that. Interesting. Uh, the, the champagne thing you mentioned earlier is kind of interesting to me because that has this sort of, I don't know, this territorialism, this idea of borders, because uh, champagne can only come from that one place. Yes. Uh, and, and so there are other sparkling wines from different places yeah. around the world. But, I mean, th- there is, there's a really interesting kind of, um, I guess you'd call it a power dimension, a political dimension about, you know, ownership over a particular oh, yes. method. of. Uh, is that something that, that you know, uh, expands outwards across, uh, you know, other types of grapes or other types of wines? Well, yeah, I mean, you got champagne, you have Prosecco. Prosecco can only come from a certain region. I mean, you know, you can't put on a, you know, everybody can make, you know, Chardonnay, but like you can't put, oh, you can't make Napa Valley Chardonnay and put it on a label, right? The territorial thing is, you know, the history of Champagne. And, you know, it, it's very, it's, it's, it's so French. If it was any other place, it would be, but it's so French to say, no, you can't make this. But it also goes back to like the other regions. You have Burgundy, right? 
you have Bordeaux. Those are all, and I, I look at it like they just, they, they want to protect their name. They want to protect their grapes. They want to protect their association. And it's in, you know, Italy, the, every wine region does it. Mm. My whole thing, and I tell people that doesn't make it better than something else. Because like you said, like I love, I love sparkling wine. I drink a lot of sparkling wine. That is my go-to all the time. And I tell people there, there are some sparkling wines that taste better than some champagne. Because you can have someone make champagne. It doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's champagne. Right. So if somebody puts your name or your face on a bottle of wine, it's going to be a sparkling. Oh yeah. Oh, it's going to be sparkling. If my name is ever attached to anything, it's going to be a sparkling wine. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Julia, that's, yeah. it's been so interesting talking to you. I, I really appreciate it. What should people do next? Having listened to this, having heard about wine, what do you recommend that they go out and do? I mean, I assume that everybody's had wine, they've tried wine, mm -hmm. they've got some in there. Is there something that they should explore or something they should read or something they should watch that uh, that will take people to the next level of that journey? I want you to, I want everybody listening to go to a country that you would normally not buy wine and buy a wine from there. So Slovenia, <laughs> Georgia, Hungary, go to a place that you would normally not gravitate to make a wine place and buy that wine. It's step out your comfort zone. And guess what? I have to do that as well because I have, a, my comfort zone is sparkling, right? I'm always going to go for sparkling and I might go for like a California red. But then I force myself to say, hey, try this like Hungarian wine. Try this ferment that you're not used to having and just an exploration to get your, me out of the rut of drinking the same thing. Interesting. Thank you so much. It's been really, really fascinating. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Wine is science. You have to remember that wine is science. That's wine writer Julia Coney, and that's the MTF podcast. Julia is at Julia Coney on Twitter and juliaconey.com on the web. MTF Labs, much the same, at MTF Labs on Twitter and mtflabs.net online. Thanks very much to Jen, Mars, Sergio and the team, to Airtone and Ziv Moran for the music today, as well as Run Dreamer for the MTF Audio logo. And unless you're, I don't know, having breakfast right now or driving somewhere, go and grab yourself a glass of something nice if you haven't already. Press whatever button you need in order to share, like, rate, review, follow, subscribe or recommend. And you have yourself a great evening. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.